be with all of you this morning, and I'm not just saying that. Um, it really is good to be with all of you this morning. It's been one of those weeks, and uh, I'm sure nobody in here has had one of those weeks before, but I'm just here to tell you I had one of those weeks, and to come in here then and be with my family and uh, to take the Lord's Supper with you, to see Jake Comerfeld come out of that water and Derek and Brianda and sing with you guys and recognize what's been done for us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so when I say it's uh, good to be with you, I, I, I want you to know that's not just something I say every time. It's uh, really good to be with you all. And uh, I'd ask you to turn with me now into God's Word. Uh, in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we're going to be reading from verses 1 through 23 this morning. And this is the first of a three-part series with Peter and Cornelius. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read all 23 verses. We'll cover them throughout the message, but I think we should read this here uh, as a whole. Verse 23 verses. Acts chapter 10, this is God's Word says, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attend him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? 
And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Our Heavenly Father, we do just give you praise this morning that you have allowed us the privilege of gathering together to be instructed by your word, to be encouraged by the testimonies that we've heard this morning, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We just, we just give you all the praise and all the glory for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. <coughs> well, the book of Acts is easily one of the most exciting books in all of the scriptures. I think many of us would say the first couple books of the Bible are among the most exciting. We have Genesis and Exodus, very action-packed, filled with great truths, including very intriguing narratives. Uh, Of course, we all love our Lord's account in the Gospels, uh, the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We even love to read about that which is yet to come, what's going to happen at the very end of the world as we know it, in the book of Revelation. But the book of Acts, uh, the second letter to, uh, of Luke to the most excellent Theophilus, the acts of the risen Lord through his Holy Spirit are almost on another level of excitement because we're still in this age. Uh, we're still in the church age, and Acts is where we get to see the genesis, not of the world, not of all of mankind and all life on this planet, but the genesis of a more concentrated creation, Uh, the genesis of the church, the birth of the new people of God, the beginning and formation of the body of Christ, which, if we truly believe, we are all a part of even to this moment as you hear my voice. Uh, The section of Scripture that we're going to look at today here in Acts chapter 10 is another monumentally significant moment in the days surrounding the birth of the church, these early days. James Boyce said, this chapter 10 is one of the most important chapters in Acts, perhaps even one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. But why? Why is it so important? Well, it's so important because it tells us how a gospel that was originally thought of exclusively in Jewish terms uh, came by the intervention and revelation of God to be practically as well as uh, theoretically a gospel for the whole world not just for Israel. Uh, Any Gentile here this morning, any person here this morning who was not born an ethnic Israelite should rejoice at what unfolds in this chapter and the chapters to come. If you are here this morning and you're not an Israelite by birth, a Jew by birth, this 10th chapter should cause your heart to overflow with thanksgiving. It should cause your heart to overflow with praise, Uh, to your creator for what's been done for you. It it should cause you to sing. It should cause you to extol God uh, personally. And and those like you should also be praising the Lord because this is the testimony of how not only we Gentiles, even us lowly Gentiles, could come into the presence of of the Most High God along with the believing Jews, but also, and maybe even more significant, that we could come into his presence just as we are. Not as converts to Judaism or 
through adherence to the moral or ceremonial laws as laid out in the book of Mo- books of Moses, but simply by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And it's here that we get to see this unfold, the Gentile inclusion into the marvelous and majestic plan of redemption set forth from before the very foundations of the earth. Here we see the Lord breaking down these barriers, as Noel said, uh, that, that have been erected between his creatures. Here we see how a people who were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, a people who had no hope and were without God in the world, here we see how a people who were once far off, as Paul said, have now been brought near by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who is himself our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's what we get to see here in this 10th chapter. That happens right here. This is the longest narrative in the entire book of Acts. And, and we have the tremendous privilege of coming together to look at the details of this uh, account, uh, Lord willing. So let's do that. Let's, let's dive right in here to Acts chapter 10, verse 1 where we meet a centurion named Cornelius. Luke says in verse 1 that Cornelius was a centurion at Caesarea. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, cohort of 600 men. Uh, Caesarea was uh, on the coast of the sea, which was about 30 miles north of Joppa. And remember from last week, Luke told us at the end of chapter 9, Joppa was the city that Peter was in for many days. He was staying with one Simon, a tanner. Now, uh, Caesarea, where Cornelius stayed, it was a very modern city. It was a modernized city. It was a Roman seaport. It had a very nice harbor. This is actually the place where Pontius Pilate uh, lived. There was a lot of military personnel stationed there. There were many thousands of Roman soldiers. And Luke says here that Cornelius was a commander of a group of these soldiers, in fact, a century of soldiers, or 100 soldiers, 100 men. He was the commander of 100 Roman soldiers. Now, I thought it was interesting that it's said to have taken a man 15 years to ascend to the rank of centurion. What that tells us about Cornelius is that he was a very honorable and respected man among his own people, among the Romans, but Luke goes on to say in verse 22, this admiration extended even beyond his brothers in Rome. He was spoken well, uh, spoken well of by the whole Jewish nation. So the Jews actually thought well of Cornelius as well. Luke, Luke says in verse 2 that he was a devout man. He was religious. He was pious. And his piety was sincere. He was a faithful man. Not only that, but he gave alms, which means he was charitable toward the people. And again, likely not only to his own people, but to the people of God, to the people of the God of Israel. He gave to needy Jews. He was admired not only by his own countrymen, 
but he was admired even by the Jews, which is significant considering what we're going to go on to talk about. Uh, he prayed to God, Luke says, continually, without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean he was you know, on his face all day long, but what it means is he was praying in his heart all day long, continually, acknowledging God, thinking about God, praying to God. He was a man of prayer. He was a man who was concerned with the will of the Lord, and it's clear that he sought out that will and desired to have even more uh, revelation and even greater knowledge of God. Now, Luke calls him a man, he says specifically he was a man who feared God. He was a God-fear. There were, there were basically three types of Gentiles in those days. First, there were the straight-up godless heathens. Well, they had a God. They had a whole slew of gods, but because they didn't worship the real God, they were actually godless. Then there were a group of people like Cornelius here, again known as the God-fearers, why they were considered Gentile or non-Jewish from an ethnical standpoint, ethnic standpoint, uh, they were men and women who feared the God of Israel. They were known as proselytes of the gate or at the gate. And they're completely distinct from the third type of Gentiles because the third type of Gentiles were considered to be full-on proselytes or converts to Judaism. Uh, they were called proselytes of righteousness. And unlike the god fears, they had actually gone through some of the ceremonial customs, like circumcision. Uh, these god fears, like Cornelius, they still had a reverential awe of the one true God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they weren't considered full converts like the uh, uh, Gentiles of righteousness. Uh, the proselytes of righteousness. Cornelius hadn't been circumcised, and I can understand why he wouldn't want to go through all the, the customs and stuff to become a Jewish proselyte. I can understand that. First of all, he was a grown man. And, and any grown man here among us today knows there's a gargantuan difference between being circumcised on the eighth day of your life <laughs> and the 8,000th day of your life. <laughs> Needless to say, it would have put him out of commission for a couple weeks. He didn't get to enjoy the vast array of pain medications that are available to us today. But beyond that, he, he would have had to submit himself under the yoke of the moral and, and ceremonial laws of Moses, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. If it, it would have ended his career, no doubt. But the problem is the current setting in the current time period uh, and, and what kind of law would he really have been placing himself under? What was the law at that point? It was rabbinical Judaism. It was pharisaical Judaism. This hyper-legalistic, burdensome, heartless form of Judaism which Christ himself condemned in multiple occasions. It wasn't the same. Uh, this, was the, this was the law that says, not only are you going to break the laws that God laid out in the Pentateuch, but we're not even going to let you get close to breaking them. This is the one that said, we're going to make all kinds of other laws to form around uh, a border around you and, and put a border in between you and the actual law of God. But then we're going to make our laws even more important and more authoritative than God's original laws. And we're going to hold you to them. Uh, that's the definition of legalism, by the way. And that was the Judaism of Cornelius' day, as we'll see in the coming weeks. 
Now, Cornelius, he wasn't a full-on proselyte. He, he did pray to God. He did live up to the light and revelation given him from God. He did raise his children the one, uh, to fear the one true God. Luke says his whole household feared God. Now think about that. In, in an environment like Rome, which had a pantheon of, of gods to worship, including Caesar himself, Cornelius and his house served the one true God. So that's Cornelius. He was a, a God-fearing man, a God-fearing man who was about to be rocked by one of the messengers of the God that he revered. Luke writes in verse 3, <clears throat> About the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? In terror. And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, this angel, this holy angel, who we'll read about in verse 22, this angel says, listen, Cornelius, the Lord knows you've been praying. He hears your prayers. Your prayers have ascended to him like a fragrant offering, like a burnt offering. And like every other person in all of creation, he knows your heart. He knows the intentions behind your prayers and even your giving of alms. Uh, he's revealed to you some knowledge or brought to light some of the truths about himself, and now he's going to reveal to you even more truths of himself. He's going to reveal even more light. That's what this angel is saying here. Now here's the $64,000 question, and one that has been discussed by, frequently by many commentators and scholars throughout the ages. Was Cornelius actually saved before this vision? Was he saved because of his prayers? Was he saved because of his giving of alms? Was he actually saved before this angel came to him? Well, I'm not sure why there's so much debate, debate over this personally. All one has to do is, is simply keep reading this narrative account where Peter is speaking in chapter 11, verse 13, and he says how Cornelius told us that he had seen the angel stand in his, in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he had at the beginning. So I'm not sure what all the debate is about. Maybe I'm missing something. He was not already saved prior to the vision of this angel. See, folks always get hung up on works, don't we? We want to do something. We want to work to obtain such a great salvation. I mean, he prayed. He gave alms. He even taught his children and his whole household how to fear the Lord. You know, J. Vernon McGee, he said, uh, in America today, Cornelius at this point would pass for a Christian and a Christian of the highest degree and an outstanding man. But he actually was not a Christian. He had not even heard the gospel. Another commentator said, these are wonderful traits that Cornelius possessed, but none of them can save a man's soul from hell. Tragically, there will be many devout men and women in hell because they failed to believe in Jesus Christ. Faith alone saves, not religious devotion, no matter how sincere. 
So Cornelius, this admirable and strong man, is terrified by this vision, this actual vision of an angel, told that he had been heard by God, and then he's given specific instructions in verse 5. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And what is his response in verse 7? When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. He says, all right, I'm going to do what God told me to do. Not only did he send the standard two soldiers to bring Simon Peter back, but he put one of, who had a bit higher rank with them to ensure they followed through with the orders. And having told them everything, including the details of this vision, he sent them off to Joppa. Now, I can't help but think about what these guys were thinking when Cornelius told them everything. Like, the guy says he saw an angel... Now he's going to send us down to grab this Jew and bring him back? What is this guy, nuts or what? I don't know. That's just what I thought of when I read it. <laughs> but they were saying, okie dokie. So they went on their way. Now, this whole account here actually takes place over a period of four days. We'll see this unfold over the next few weeks. Four days. So the first day is Cornelius, uh, his angelic vision. Now we're at day two in verse nine. Day two, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop uh, about the sixth hour to pray. So if nine o'clock, or or if the ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon, that would make the sixth hour what? Three hours earlier. Yeah, noon. Well, lunch. Very good. Yeah, that's what I call noon too. Yeah, 12 o'clock. Peter goes up on this housetop to pray. Now, whose housetop is this? The other Simon, uh, Simon the Tanner. That's the guy Cornelius sent his men to. Again, Luke told us the very same thing in in chapter 9, verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a Tanner. Now, this is a big deal, okay? Simon's lodging at at Simon the Tanner's house. And and one we can't gloss over, you see... uh, A tanner was one who tanned hides, one who tanned the hides of dead animals. And and any good Jew knows that uh, contact with dead animals, which were not considered clean or properly sacrificed, was prohibited. Even contact with someone who had contact with unclean dead animals, not properly sacrificed, would render that person unclean according to the Mosaic law. And if that wasn't hard enough... Leviticus 11.39 goes even further by saying, if any animal which you may eat dies, who, who touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. Excuse me, let me reword that. If any, if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Now, this was Simon the Tanner's whole deal here. I mean, that's what he did. And yet, here is Simon Peter staying at this guy's house, this house by the sea. He needed a lot of water. He needed a lot of salt to do what he had to do, gutting all those dead carcasses and 
skinning those dead carcasses, washing those skinned hides, preserving those skinned hides, hanging these skinned hides. And here's Simon Peter, and he's staying with these man, this man who has all these dead hides around, all these carcasses around. Now, this is important to note because it shows us that the Lord was already working on the heart of the apostle Peter. He was preparing him for what would happen next. So Luke says he goes up to the roof of this guy's house. It's a flat roof, and it's right by the seashore. He's got a great view. In verse 10, he says he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. This is understandable. You've got meat hanging around all day. It's middle of the day. It's lunchtime. Luke says they're already preparing something below. I can smell the food for the, for the luncheon we're about to have. I understand this. Peter's up on the roof here. All of a sudden, God gives him a full course meal, doesn't he? End of verse 10, it says that Peter falls into a trance. Literally, this is the word ecstasis, meaning ecstasy. An ecstasy fell upon him. Sounds nice. It's been defined as a state of transport in which one is not conscious of the body, in which one's mind is particularly open to heavenly communications. He's up on this rooftop and he goes into a trance. Luke says he saw the heavens opened. Now, we've seen this, this language before, right? Many times when God wants to transcend the natural law or order of this universe to reveal something extremely significant to his creatures, he opens the heavens. Psalm 78, he opened up the clouds of heaven, rained manna down upon them. Matthew 3, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Revelation chapter 19, And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in, his, in righteousness he judges and wages war. I saw the heavens were opened. That's what we see here. With Peter, Peter sees the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. This is like the sail. If you can picture a big ship, like a, a, a big sailboat or something. But it's a huge sheet. It's, a, it's, a, it's large. It's wide. And it's coming down from heaven. And verse 12 says that in it, meaning some people view it as a container. It's a container of a sheet. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice came and says, Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Get up. Kill these animals and have a feast. That sounds like a pretty good deal for a guy who was just struggling with such tremendous hunger pains here on this rooftop, but there's a big problem here. There's a big problem for Peter. Apparently, he wasn't that hungry. He says in verse 14, this is very important. By no means, Lord. Forbid it, Lord. No way, Lord. Do you you see the contradiction there in that statement? No, master, In this context, this is a servant telling his master, no, I'm not doing that. 
By no means, Lord. Why? I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Here's Peter, pious Peter, sweet, sweet Peter, attempting to prove his piety to the one who knows him best, saying, you want me to eat a reptile? Me? I'm a Jew. I'm not going to touch those creeping things, those birds of the air. I'm not touching any of those filthy animals, unless, of course, they part the hooves or cloven-footed or chew the cud. Those things I'll eat, but not these other things. That's not going to happen, Lord. Why not? Well, because Moses said I shouldn't do it. Moses said not to. By no means will I do what you tell me to do, Lord, for I am a proud Jew. And a proud Jew like me would not eat your fully hooved animals, your creeping things, your pigs, your birds, your lizards, and such detestable things, Lord. Go to Leviticus chapter 11. You'll see specific laws for and against the consumption and even the handling of things that have come in contact with, with these animals. So Peter says, it's not going to happen, Lord. Only to have a voice come to him a second time saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven, it says. This is not uncommon for Peter, is it? Peter, who told Jesus after being informed that his master would be crucified, far be it from me, Lord, this will never happen. Peter, who said, all these guys might fall away, but I will never fall away. Then he goes on to deny Jesus three times, right? Falls away. That's Peter. This is who Peter is. It's his disposition. It's his character. It's his makeup. But the good thing about Peter is that in him we see a principle for our lives even here today. We are all growing in our faith. We are all being transformed and conformed as we are informed. And that's what Peter's doing here. Peter is being informed by God himself through this vision, just like all of us are being informed and conformed and transformed by God right now by the hearing of his word. You're being conformed into the image of his son. By the way, it doesn't say that Peter told his Lord no three times, but only once. Then the sheet was presented again twice. The Lord is showing, and Peter is growing. That sounded a little prosperity gospel. (laughs) The Lord is showing, Peter is growing. You can grow too if you just give me however many animals you think were in that sheet. Now, this is talking about spiritual maturity. He's growing spiritually, not not his portfolio. Um, Luke says in verse 17 that Peter was inwardly perplexed at what this vision might mean. At first, he didn't get it, but he would get it. And to truly understand the significance, I want you to turn the next page. Look what Peter himself says about this vision in the next chapter. Explaining what happened to the apostles and the brethren back in Jerusalem, he gives them, he gives them the meaning of this vision. Are you ready for this? He's, these are his words in uh, chapter 11, verse 5. He said, I was in the city of Joppa, I was praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. 
Looking at it closely, I observed all kinds of animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. At least he's honest. If I was going back, I don't know. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and and it was drawn up again into heaven. And, And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Go with these men. Go with them, Peter making no distinction. That's, the, vi- that's the, the explanation of this vision here. But what's he talking about? Is he talking about the lizards? Is he talking about the pigs, the birds, the creeping things? <clears throat> no. He's talking about human beings. He's talking about people. Now, obviously, this is just another example in the New Testament of the dietary laws being abrogated, but the clear takeaway and Peter's takeaway uh, by his own testimony is that the sheet or the sail, this container with all these animals on it, represented people. All people. People who were considered clean, the Jews. And people who were considered unclean, which were the Gentiles. Gentiles whom God has cleansed. People. And thus, the history of the world, the history of redemption would be forever changed. Right there on that rooftop in Joppa, the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth, the creator and sustainer of all things, revealed to this Simon Peter that the barriers that were first erected, erected by Uh, First, the Mosaic ceremonial and moral laws with regard to how God viewed men and women of this earth were broken down. They were shattered. There was now to be no distinction. This is very important. Everyone who's a non-Jew in here. God, there is no distinction with God. He's saying, Peter, go to Caesarea to this Gentile man's house, making no distinction. And this is a huge shift for Peter himself and and for all of his Jewish buddies, his his fellow Jews. The Samaritans were one thing, but now Gentiles? Are you kidding me? As has been said, the, the clean animals were the Jews. The unclean animals were the Gentiles. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They thought them common and unclean. In fact, if a Jew even touched a Gentile on the street, He had to go home immediately and wash. A Gentile, if possible, was not to be spoken to and never invited into a Jewish home. The Jews felt themselves superior to the Gentiles and were filled with prejudice, pride, bigotry, snobbishness. The Jews often referred to Gentiles as dogs. The Old Testament taught that Jews were to be a separate people, but they perverted this so as to believe that they were a superior race and that they had no dealings at all with Gentiles. A Jew's religion, culture, and background taught him to have no social intercourse 
with Gentiles. Jews hated the Gentiles. They didn't want to touch anything that a Gentile had touched without it being washed or burned, somehow purified. They didn't even want to bring back the dust into Jerusalem. If they walked through a Gentile town or Gentile city, they'd shake the dust off their feet before coming back home. Can you imagine doing that? They had a, there was this, this major superiority complex, which over the centuries went from God protecting the Jewish society and giving them parameters by which to operate under, something that Gentiles weren't given, uh, to then perverting those parameters to the point where they detested the people outside of Judaism and had actually claimed that God chose them because they were something special. And it, and it spawned this division, this class warfare, causing the Gentiles to despise the Jews as well. That's what makes the almsgiving of Cornelius so remarkable, by the way, that the Gentiles hated the Jews just as much as the Jews hated the Gentiles. With the main issue being, though, the Jews' hatred being expressed in self-righteousness and superiority, as they had even said, how smart of God to choose the Jews, to which the Gentiles would reply, how odd of God to choose the Jews. They hated each other. And it was all based on this notion of false superiority. Uh, The problem with Judaism both then and even today is that they look down on other uh, groups because they feel they're deserving of God's divine election. And anyone who knows the truths regarding sovereign election knows that God doesn't choose his people because they deserve it. He chooses people, both Jew and Gentile, because of his abundant mercy, because of his steadfast love, his amazing grace. And this point in the narrative, in verse 17, at at this point here, Peter's perplexed. He, He still doesn't understand it. I'll soon discover what this vision meant, as we just read. But for now, let's go back to the moments directly following the vision He's confused, he's amazed at a loss when all of a sudden the men who Cornelius sent a day earlier show up in verse 17. It says, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And I love this here. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, Am I the one you are looking for? What is the reason for your coming? Verse 22. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And thus we see on full display here the divine providence of our Lord. And it is awesome. It's awesome. What is the providence of God? Well, though we can't truly grasp or comprehend it, it's been defined as the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. 
The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. Through divine providence, God accomplishes his will. To ensure that his purposes are fulfilled, God governs the affairs of men through works, men and works through the natural order of things. The laws of nature are nothing more than God's work in the universe. The laws of nature have no inherent power. Rather, they are the principles that God set in place to govern how things normally work. They're only laws because God decreed them. End quote. That's the providence of God. Now, <laughs> look at all the moving parts so far here in Acts chapter 10. And we're going to see this unfold over the next couple of weeks, Lord willing. But look at the providence of God. Look at the governance of God, the control of God on display here in all things. He sends one of his angel to a man whom he knows, whose heart he knows, whose sincerity he knows. He sends an angel who tells the centurion to send some men down to Joppa and have him bring back to Simon Peter. He says, you know where they're staying? Well, I do. Simon the Tanner's house. He's a tanner who lives by the sea. He'll be there. Don't sweat it. Just send these guys. Cornelius sends these guys who arrived just at the right time, just as Peter was sitting there thinking about the vision that he just saw, just as he was perplexed in his heart, just as he saw this vision which transcended the natural laws of this world, this sheet being lowered down on all four corners that had all these animals on it. The sheet goes back up. All of a sudden, Peter hears these guys standing at the gate asking if Peter was there, which of course he was. The Spirit of God himself tells Peter, go down there. Go with these guys. Don't doubt it. Just do it. Peter goes down and says, yeah, I'm Simon Peter. And they said, our commander saw a vision of a holy angel. And this angel said to come here to grab you and take you back up to his house in Caesarea to hear what you have to say. He goes. He goes the very next day, day three, with six other Jews. He goes up to Caesarea, to Cornelius' house, where he preaches the word to these once unclean Gentile centurion in his household who told them how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa, bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. And Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And that's right. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. What were they amazed at? They were amazed at the providence of God and the grace that was extended without distinction. Even on these Gentiles, Luke says. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Do you realize how significant this statement is? Then to the Gentiles also like you sitting here, if you're not an ethnic Israelite, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God orchestrated every last detail of this salvation experience, and, and they knew it was from God. 
And they knew he did it. He, God and God alone, had the power of the laws of this universe because he and he alone spoke this universe into existence and upholds it with his very word. To the Gentiles also. Now what does this mean ultimately, the the providence of God? It it means that we here today can, can trust that God is actually sovereign. That he is over all things. He's in control of all things. He is truly in control of all things, which, which not only means that we don't have to fret or fear over our salvation, the legitimacy of our salvation, but we have no reason to fear about the things to come. Even if they look extremely grim and, and bleak, even if we have gone through the worst week in the world, or we've gone through some very hard times and some really difficult trials in our lives. Uh, texts like these should, should only bolster our trust that the sovereign Lord of all creation is not aloof. He, he's not surprised about what's going on in this world around us that is, looks like it's in chaos. He's not surprised. And he's not surprised about what's going on in your heart and in your life. And in your family situation, and your family dynamics, and at work, and relationships with one another. He knows what's going on to the, to the very tiniest cell, and, and the very smallest detail. He knows. He's in control of all things. He, he comforts us by revealing this truth to us, even today in his word. Look at this in... Recognize. Perhaps no more, no more, uh, nowhere is this more evident than in uh, his calling of his people to himself by his grace alone. And, and we've seen it in these past few chapters, right? With the Ethiopian eunuch. We've seen uh, the great persecutor Saul. Now the centurion Cornelius. He's using multiple people from multiple backgrounds over great distances to call uh, this one sheep into his fold. God is not surprised at who comes to him because he draws them to himself. Then he uses his people, his sinful yet redeemed people, to then draw his people. I mean, think about this. Why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius the gospel? This angel could have saved everyone a lot of trouble here and and walking. And Peter could have got something to eat. I mean... He could have said, listen, bud, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. He sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, into this world. You probably heard of him. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He was born of a virgin, conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit of God himself. He was born under the law, under the Jewish law, the the Mosaic law, and he kept the law, all of it, in its entirety. The only Jew to ever do so, Cornelius, In fact, he was the only human to ever do so because he was both truly God and truly man. The angel could have said, anyhow, Cornelius, uh, he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. He never sinned once, not in deed or word or even thought. And yet, yet his own people, the Jews, the religious leaders condemned him to death for blasphemy, for saying that he was God. They also condemned him for saying that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But they didn't know he was talking about his body. They didn't know he was talking about the resurrection from the dead. Anyhow, 
They couldn't put him to death themselves, so they went to your boy Pilate. They called up your buddy Pilate, and Pilate tried over and over and over again to let him go, but he caved because he's not a God-fearing man like you are. No, his God is Caesar. So Pilate caves, and he has Jesus crucified. Now, Jesus died on that cross. He died. He was a substitute for sinners. I'll get to that in a minute, but he died. They even stuck him with a spear. They took him down. They put him in an empty tomb. But guess what? Three days later, he was raised from the dead, Cornelius. He came out of that tomb, a risen, living, living, triumphant Savior. And he appeared to many witnesses before then ascending back up into heaven, back up to the right hand of the Father where he is now, even now, currently ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who belong to him, all those whom he has sent his Spirit to indwell them, to save them to eternal life. All those who have faith in this gospel that I just shared with you, Cornelius. All those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. All of those who would but turn from their sin and call upon his name alone for salvation. All those for whom he died that they might live and live forever and ever in glory with their creator. How about that good news, Cornelius? Guess what, Cornelius? This good news, it's not just for Israel. It's not just for Israel. It's for you and your household and your extended family members and people you don't even know about, Cornelius. Because God has cleansed a people and he's brought them in. And he said, I love you. And I will forgive you. And I will reconcile you to myself. And you don't even have to become a ceremonial Jew or get the snip snip to be a part of this body. That's the great news. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And it's the same message for all of you here today. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. Why didn't the angels just say that? (laughs) Well, two reasons. Number one, the angels don't know about sin and redemption and all this need of forgiveness. And In fact, Peter himself would go on to say the angels long to look into such things. What are they talking about? Well, the plan of redemption, the gospel. Angels were created holy. They don't understand the need to be redeemed as Peter did, right? They were created holy. Number two, God didn't give the Great Commission to angels. He gave it to the disciples. He gave it to the apostles and every man, woman, and child who bears the name of Christ. You and me his foolish and weak and sinful children that he has called to himself and given us the privilege of telling others of this wonderful news, including this morning. God uses a sinner to draw his sinners to himself. You just heard the gospel for yourselves. From a dying man to dying men. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Are you just waiting to hit the Indian food? 
It's the only way to reconciliation with the Father. Faith in this gospel. Faith in this name. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way. Not one way among many ways, but the way, the truth, the life. It's true. He is sovereign. He, he has providential authority over all things, but take this with you, my brothers and sisters. Never forget this amazingly marvelous, magnificent, wonderful, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God and his divine providence has chosen to love us. He's chosen to love you and, and to forgive you and, and to forgive me and to deliver us, to call us, to save us to eternal life. And then even in this life, even as we're still living this life, he conforms us. He conforms us into the image of his son and then he, he uses us to tell other people how they can be saved. Not because of who they are, not because of what they've done, but because of who he is and what he has done. And we need to look no further than the life of the Apostle Peter to recognize this. And that's what we'll do next week. But just for a quick taste, sneak peek. Look at verse 23. Look at this. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. He invited them in. He invited these guys to the house where he was staying to eat with him, to talk with him. They, they could sleep in the same house. Think of the discussion that these guys had, right? Think, think of Peter there as he's literally growing as they talk, literally being prepared while he talks with these men, these pagan soldiers. This, this would have been unthinkable not long ago for Peter, but not anymore. Not anymore. He has been positionally justified before the Father. He is being progressively sanctified by the Spirit. He's being molded. He's being shaped, conformed into the image of his Lord and Savior, the very Son of God. And this marked an extremely, extremely important moment in that sanctification process. Such is the case for each one of us here today, whether Jew or Gentile. Apart from the divine mercies of our Lord, we all had no hope we were all without God in the world. We were all once far off, but now we have been brought near by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for his amazing grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's do that together now. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.